Welcome to Horror Makes Us Happy, the podcast where we ask the question, what is it about horror that makes us happy? Your hosts are Steve Becker and myself, Chris Whitman, and you can find out more about us at our website, horrormakesushappy.com. Trigger warning. We do this every show. I'm going to get it this time. No, no fumbles. Before we get started, uh, trigger warning for our listeners here. If um, We will be talking about things of the horror nature, which could involve such sensitive subjects such as, you know, murder, child abuse, F-bombs, foul language. So if that's not your cup of tea, then maybe listen to a different podcast. But um, if, if that is not your cup of tea, what are you doing here? Why, why did you even click on this? Mm-hmm. This, is, this is fun and interesting. There's that part of it, too. So now you know. Yeah, kind of rambled. Didn't fumble, kind of rambled. Anyway, <laughs> coming up in the near future, we'll be, man- we'll be interviewing Tyler Dupay, managing staff writer and columnist for Dread Central. Uh, Twitch streamer Harry Horror. But today, we have the pleasure of the company of Rodrigo Godinho, president of Rumor Magazine, which just recently celebrated their 25th anniversary. Congratulations. And director and producer of a couple of products you may have heard of, like uh, Demonology of Desire and The Eyes of Edward James. Welcome to the show. Hey. Thank you, guys. Happy to be here. Thank you. Our pleasure. I don't know how much we had uh, discussed this before the um, the interview, but basically the way it works here is we ask you a bunch of questions about your childhood, teenage years, and then adulthood to try to find out what it is about horror that you personally enjoy. And, you know, the, the hope is that if we talk to enough people, we might start seeing some common themes and, you know, find something interesting about the horror community as a whole that way. But um, actually, before we get started, did you have anything that you want to pitch as far as what you're currently working on? Well, I'm uh, currently touring my new film called The Breach. That one's doing festivals, uh, international film festivals right now. I just finished the Morbido Film Festival in Mexico. It's doing uh, Trieste Science Fiction uh, Festival in Italy this week. Then after that, it's in Toronto at the Blood in the Snow Film Festival. Uh, so that's that's really what I'm what I'm uh, working on right now. Just kind of doing the uh the the promotional tour for that film okay actually one other thing before we jump into the interview uh for the listeners we recently started streaming on twitch and we have discord server that we host listen parties every saturday or sorry every sunday on Mm -hmm. if you are interested in joining us there are links on our website horrormixeshappy.com but yeah uh so starting with the interview and starting with childhood what are some of the earliest memories of scary things so I grew up, uh, sorry, grew up in Playas de Tijuana, Mexico, which is Baja California. I don't know if you guys are familiar. I was born Somewhere. in San Diego. Yeah, and so it, it's just literally over the border there. And um, there was some stuff there when I was very young. I would have been around maybe six. That you know, I saw some people that were hurt, you know, car accidents and stuff like that. You know, some of it was pretty traumatic, actually. Mm. Um, and, and all the sort of kids in the neighborhood, they would kind of like, you know, if there, if there was an accident somewhere, it would be like tip each other off and go see who could, who could get there first kind of thing. And a couple of times we got there early. And, um, yeah, it wasn't, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't cool. So that was kind of, you know, that was pretty traumatic. But even so, even though... Um, I was always uh, still somehow drawn to to frightening images in in art and stuff, which was different. It's, it's that was a, sort of like a different caliber. 
Um, but I do remember I had a, I had a, um, my mom or my dad or whoever had like a big uh, Dante's Inferno, that, that uh, big volume that was uh, illustrated by Gustave Doré. And uh, I remember pouring through that and just, I would periodically look at that, even it was, even though it was super frightening and, you know, it had to decapitated people, mm-hmm. you know, heads cut off and this and that, the other. And I would just kind of like look at it all the time. In terms of film, the earliest memory I have of seeing something that was really terrifying was this movie I saw on TV and it was like broad daylight and stuff. I think it was, that was my mom's friend's place but it was just so frightening and um years later actually it was it was during the time at room work that i found out what that movie was and it was the drop of water segment from mario baba's black sabbath and uh that was really uh yeah that that was that that really frightened me but it, it kind of um you know fascinated me at the same time so every time i went to um to the theme park with my with my parents you know we'd go up to san diego there to to i would we'd go to whatever disneyland or whatever you know and we, i would always want to go on the rides on the uh, on the rather the the haunted the, the scary rides you know the those haunted house rides or whatever mm-hmm. and i was always bugging them to go and then the moment i got in there i was like totally regretting it but it was this thing that always happened there's always this thing that that was sort of drawing me to it, but also uh, that uh, was really frightening. Yeah, it's interesting. It sounds like from a very early age, you have the both simultaneous intrigue yet fright, I guess, you know, the, the initial fright of, you know, the horror of passing by a, an accident in real life, but then just that natural intrigue of, yeah, but how bad is it? Yeah, there was also this thing of, I remember as a, Thinking of my youth, uh, I, I broke my finger when I was quite young. I think I was about seven years old. So I had to go do these regular visits to the doctor. And mm-hmm. in the, uh, the hospital that I went to, there were these wax effigies, uh, oh. you know, when you came in. And they were all uh-huh. like diseased faces, like different diseases, you know. And oh, that's, were, that's a great were, thing to have at a hospital. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it was, there was one with, with leprosy and it was, it was sort of like behind a, like they were in glass sort of like boxes. Man, this thing, I swear, I looked at this thing. It was so frightening. Uh, it, it, you know, I thought if, if the glass broke, I would immediately get leprosy. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, uh, but the thing is, I always made a point to look at it. Mm-hmm. Every time I went there, I made a point to go to this thing and look at it and, and have my little seven-year-old soul just tremble in front of it. Mm. Yeah, there was some something about that feeling that that was... I don't know about positive, but it was, it was attractive to me, right? Mm-hmm. And in fact, you know, when I started Remorg, one of the reasons Remorg is called Remorg is because Remorg is a detective story. And when I started it, it was, I wanted to sort of investigate why something that is repulsive or, you know, commonly repulsive is also attractive. Hey, look at that. We're on similar paths. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so that, that was sort of, uh, that was... Well, one of the guiding ideas behind Remark. Hmm. So have you figured it out for yourself? Or are we wasting our time here? Well, you know, there are interesting answers to that question, but they're not necessarily true. 
Okay. And then there are true answers to that question, which are not necessarily interesting. I mean, ultimately, you know, you guys will have to figure out and you'll have to answer that question for yourselves. But for me, you know, I think at some point the answer, the question, that particular question became less important. And the, the idea of just using that, that those, those emotions and that space, that horror space as a creative space became much more interesting. But you know, I mean, look, if the, if this podcast if Remorg was a was a was a magazine about soccer and this podcast was about sports, nobody would ever ask that question like why are you into this? Mm-hmm. Nobody would ever think that was an interesting or or <laughs> question in any way shape or form. The only reason we ask that question when it comes to horror is because there's an implication that there's something wrong or something mm-hmm. you know, off. Yeah, like when you say you compare it to sports, everyone just assumes, well, of course you like sports. That's a normal people thing to like. But if you like things that are horrific, then yes, it's by default wrong for some reason. So that's interesting because, you know, you kind of have to turn that question back on the person who's asking it. Say, well, why is it abnormal? Hmm. Answer the question with a question. Yeah, like, you know, I mean, I think it's perfectly normal and healthy to be interested in death in some way, shape, or form. To have an interest and curiosity about it. You know, I'm not saying that everyone who's into horror entertainment is reflecting a curiosity about death, but certainly many are. Mm. So, you know, it's a complex issue. There's a lot of of levels to it. I think I would certainly encourage you guys to keep going and to try and find the answers for yourselves. Maybe your answer more interesting than mine mm. uh well like you say it's different for every person so that's sort of the thing is we figure you know because not everybody's the same there are probably going to be certain buckets shall we say that a number of different people will fall into and it's a matter of of saying okay well what are let's see if we can identify what some of these buckets are and it's kind of interesting that what you said about, you know, potentially interesting, but not true or true, but not interesting mm-hmm. because that might be the case for some of our guests and maybe be true for you that, you know, for some people there are interesting reasons. And for some people it's, it's not necessarily as interesting as others. Almost. I don't want to use the word mundane, but for some people it's it's simply just a pleasure of the thrill whereas other people sometimes have deeper reasons for it and it it's just going to be a matter of you know going through some questions and seeing if we can figure out what it is for you and this is going back to you know potentially handing data back to main the mainstream world and things like that but i think one of the things that i have picked up on not only again relating to horror but across the world and, and other things as well I like to use this analogy of having sort of three levels of enjoyment in something. The first level is, yeah, I liked it. It was okay. You know, nothing special. The second one is, oh my God, that was amazing. That's awesome. I love it. And then the third one is. Doo-doo. I hated it. Well, no, I was going to say it's like almost creepy level of, I like that in almost a sexual way. Like Uh there's like something 
deep inside that touches me when I, when I experiences this. And I think part of the reason for the, I don't want to say hesitation, but the misunderstanding of horror fans is I think that there are people who are afraid or, or can't, they're not subtle enough to tell the differences between stages one, two, or three. And they think that horror fans are all stage three when that's not necessarily the case. And so they're thinking, oh, there's these people who get off on murder and suicide and rape and whatever. And that's not necessarily exactly the case. You can enjoy things for certain reasons without it necessarily being that third level of, you know, oh, this this is uh, awakening something in me kind of thing. Right. But that's a whole other tangent. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I, it's interesting, actually. Um, I mean, uh, you know, when we talk about, I'm assuming you're talking mainly about horror films. Is that right? Or are you talking about just horror entertainment in general? Well, there I was actually talking about anything because it's not just horror, but in in relation to how the mainstream world seems to interact with horror, I think is an application of that concept in the horror niche, shall we say. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because if you have somebody who gets off on like sports to that degree, nobody cares. Right. But the difference there is because if you if you get off on sports that much, they don't have to worry about whether or not you're going to turn around and kill somebody. Whereas they think that if you're a fan of horror and you enjoy horror that much, then they might have a reason to potentially be afraid. Right. It's going back to that whole question of what's considered normal and what's considered abnormal. And, and what's uh, dangerous. Like I say, right. it, like if you like rugby that much, who cares? Right. Although you might kill somebody. Yeah. Well, with rugby, rugby, yes, because that can be a very <laughs> yeah. dangerous sport. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, like, the, well, the difference is horror is, you know, the subject matter is hurting people, and that's the interest. Whereas with sports, you're not really, oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, but also, I mean, some, some of the most dangerous groups of people are, you know, sports fans and soccer, soccer fans. Soccer You know, these yep. people, yeah, they just, you know, this was a very, potentially very violent situation there you could get into with sports fans if they believe in crossing boundaries yes right not all of them but but it is quite common i've never you know i've never witnessed horror fans who are are arguing about a movie that comes to blows (laughs) i mean maybe it's happened but it's doesn't seem to be they don't don't tear down the goalposts at the end of the football field (laughs) exactly yeah that did happen didn't it Multiple times, all over the place. Oh, and remember when Philadelphia ate horseshit because they won the Super Bowl? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What? Wow. Yeah, Philly fans were uh, they they rioted in Philadelphia when they won the Super Bowl, and one of the things that was noted was uh, a man just picking up uh, horseshit in the road and eating it because he was so happy that his team won. Wow. <laughs> that just sounds like somebody who had a scat fetish to begin with. Right. And just <laughs> and excuse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Point being, fanaticism can get out of control no matter what the genre. Yes, okay. Sorry, sorry for uh, the tangent. And not only that, but there's also the stupidity of large people in numbers. So, oh yeah, I mean, that's that's a whole that's a whole yeah. other topic. Halloween Kills taught me about that. It's it's called uh, uh, mob mentality, and it's real. Yes. This the the struggle is real. let's let's jump down and ask some other questions again focusing on childhood did you participate in halloween oh yeah yeah halloween um i have some really fond memories of halloween when i was a kid there um 
in Mexico, we also have the Day of the Dead. So mm-hmm. um, right. it's, it's the festival that starts right after Halloween. It's uh, several days. All Hallows three days. Eve or Saints Day, All Saints Day? Yeah, Dia de los Muertos, they call it. But what what it is, it's 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 more, um, you know, it's an ancestral thing. So you you honor your dead, and you you know you go to the cemetery, you take food, you sing songs, and you, you do that kind of stuff. But it's sort of like a, you know, it, it's a it's a cultural thing, but it, it keeps that sort of spirit of of Halloween alive past October 31st, you know. Um, so the the Halloween tradition of North America is largely, you know, it's largely that one night and, you know, kid, the trick-or-treat and candy for kids. And then uh, in Mexico, you kind of have this other component, which is a little bit, uh, well, it's considerably deeper, really ultra-visual and, and actually mm-hmm. quite beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And the familial ties definitely make it a lot deeper, too. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I encourage you, if you guys never experienced that before, to, to, to come to Mexico sometime and check it out. It's really interesting. I would love to. That would be cool. Uh, did you have a favorite costume for Halloween when you were a kid? Um, favorite costume? I don't really remember, no. I remember being like a ghost once. You know, that didn't work out. Mm-hmm. And uh they, they were always like scary things. That's for sure. I never was a pirate. Or, yeah. like, you, know, you know, it was, it was always like Dracula or something. <laughs> awesome. Did you like to do the, uh, like the home makeup, uh, zombie makeup kind of deal? Yeah. I, I seem to remember a lot of that when I was really, really young, there were those sort of cheap little masks, you know, those, those, mm-hmm. those with the rubber Cooper. band or whatever. Yeah. And I, I remember yeah. wearing at least one Halloween. I'm, we're talking about the dawn of time here, by the way. Like, <laughs> um, I left Mexico or Baja California when I was eight years old. So everything we're talking about is sort of like in that period. Um, okay. And yeah, then I went to to uh, to uh, Canada to Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, that was that was different. That was kind of like a different situation there. Um, I still obviously still was into it, and you know, still a kid and all that, but. Um, it felt different. It felt different. Any least favorite costumes in childhood? Ah, uh, probably that ghost thing I told you about because it was literally a sheet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'm not the the first one to probably or the last one to, to to probably tell you this story. But yeah, you know, you sheet, you cut some holes in it, you think it's great. Now nah, you're stumbling on this thing, you can't see shit. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> that's funny i never actually idea. tried the uh the classic sheet just cut holes in it I never thought about the fact that you would trip over it constantly yeah it's also funny because i was thinking you know did you not like it because it wasn't scary enough and you went more realistic and it's like no i couldn't walk in the damn thing <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah yeah i don't recommend it can relate my Noted. uh my least favorite was also a cumbersome costume uh, which a clown person no it was no, uh cumbersome there's a oh, giant cumbers. suit of foam armor that was like 60 pounds and did not really plan or engineer it. I just dove right into it. So it ended up being about 30 to 40 pounds resting just on my shoulders. And I could wear that costume for maybe two hours tops. <laughs> just wow. not fun. That's <laughs> how you learn. Yeah. yeah planning things right. is important. Uh, any scary dreams when you're a kid? Well, lots. I've had a, a very active, uh, dream life dream life throughout my my whole life but um 
I do remember some very early dreams that had had like a, like a satanic uh, figure there, like really kind of like a de- classic sort of devil with the horns and the hooves and all that. And yeah. I pro- probably that has to do with my with my upbringing. Uh, you know, like most Mexicans, I was raised Catholic, and right. um, when you go, you know, you go to churches here, there. There's, they feel different than the church, certainly than the churches in Toronto. They're older, for one. And um, this is a bit of a theory, but when you walk into a lot of Mexican churches, the way they depict Jesus Christ is is in a in a really uh, intense uh, way. He's he's very lacerated, and he's like bleeding, and he's cut, and he's you know suffering heavily. You you don't really find that depiction in in Canada, he's more yes. like the risen Christ, you know. And yeah. so, uh, the the I I thought at some point it crossed my mind. This is kind of the theory part that the reason that is the case is because um, mm. you know a lot of a lot of uh, Mexicans, particularly the lower class, um, they you know they um, they kind of require a god that suffers like they do, right? Um, so the, to depict the, the God, Jesus, as suffering makes a lot of sense because they can kind of see the, their experience in, in that God. If you, if you put this, uh, this other God that doesn't suffer, maybe that doesn't connect with them as much. And so I always thought that that had to do something with it. But of course, I'm not entirely sure. No, that's that's an interesting point, and brings up another interesting point, and in that's uh, just visually, anyway, uh, the gory and graphic are kind of already present at a young age in Latin American culture, because because you have that more graphic Jesus, where he's got the lashes and the and the nails, visceral, visceral. There you go. That's, that's for sure, man. For sure, but Latin America is a very uh, they they definitely have a sort of like a penchant for for blood and stuff i mean just, i just got back from mexico city and you know i get out of the like i got you know i got out of the airport or whatever and i took a cab went to, took a cab to my hotel i got out of the cab the first thing i see is the you know those those they have them on the street they're like these little um like newspaper stands you know what i mean mm-hmm. and on and one of the one of the it's kind of like these backdrops of all these like magazines and newspapers and stuff. But there's one particular backdrop that was all devoted to uh, true crime, and hmm. you know we're talking about like uh, these these little like newspapers that have you know like actual uh, like crime scene photos as the as the as the uh, cover photo. So you're looking at all these murdered people that were killed the day before. And, um, you know, I, I was kind of, I like, I remember looking at these things and I remember seeing them all over the place, but, you know, it kind of took me off guard this time around. And I was like, holy fuck, this is intense. You know, <laughs> it's like, you know, you're looking at families, you know, accident victims, murder victims. And they're just like, yeah, it's just like a picture there. And it's a big headline, you know, it's just like, yeah, buy this newspaper. Um, let's see. Uh, well, normally we ask whether or not there was a time you were actually terrified of something in real life as a child. You mentioned the car accidents. Um, was there anything else that would ring a bell or jump out to you as like real life terror? 
Well, I mean, I, you know, there was a time, I think I was around 13 or 12, somewhere in there. I was very, very uh, scared of like roller coasters. Okay. Um, so, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, uh, you know, car accidents where people are, you know, dying in front of you and roller coasters. I'm curious why you were afraid of roller coasters. Because they're fucking scary. Yeah, I think I was just, you know, pretty young at the time. And I mean, I, you know, probably, you know, looking over my life, I, at some point I was afraid of pl- airplanes, you know, going on an airplane and stuff like that. Yeah, there was all kinds of like fears here and there, I imagine. Uh, Let me ask sort of the inverse of that question then. Was there ever a time in childhood where you felt completely safe or calm or at bliss? Uh. Fuck, that's a great question. Is there a time in my childhood? I mean, there must have been. Um, yeah, I mean, I you know, I, I tell you this. I mean, I I, I have had um, when I was young, around sixteen years old, I, I was uh, taught um, to meditate by this um, this uh, guy who uh, learned in Tibet and whatnot. You know. Uh, when I was young, when I was, you know, 16, 17, so I started meditating and I did it for a few years and I sort of stopped. Um, then in my thirties, I picked it up again. <clears throat> and there certainly are times when I'm meditating where that's happening frequently, but that's more in my adult life. Um, it, when I was young, I don't uh, recall anything really. Okay. That's fine. What about this drop of water episode from the Black Sabbath? What was what what was significant to you about that? It's you know uh, when you're a kid you'll see something and it's one way and you you're an adult and you see it it's a, it's a different way. Hmm. But if you Google the drop of water Mario Baba, chances are you're going to see this this woman's face. Yep, looking at that right now. That is that is terrifying. <laughs> right. So that, that it was really this woman's face. So the whole setup of this uh, story is essentially that this uh, this woman dies in her bed, that woman. And this this other woman is, is sort of like brought in. She has to change her and prepare for for the uh, for uh, a kind of uh, whatever it is. The, OK, uh, so she's a mortician and this is her uh, this is her project. That's. Ooh. Well, not not quite a mortician. She just she just has to change her and stuff for the for like a viewing. It's like an old family and stuff. It's, she's she's just like a servant or whatever. Okay. Uh, so the, but she decides to to as she's changing her, she notices that this this uh, this woman has these like some pretty choice jewelry, Uh-oh. and so she decides she decides to take some. Don't do it. Don't particularly, do it. yeah, particularly a ring. And then when she gets home, this woman. You know, at night, this woman shows up to bring back her jewelry. So it's very, you know, it's very sort of uh, creepy, eerie style, very straightforward horror hmm. movie. But but in terms of the visuals, Mario Baba, the director, is you know he's known for his visuals. He's known for his mood and his atmosphere. And, you know, if you if you're like Tim Burton, is kind of like a guy who who w- would have taken a lot from Mario Baba's aesthetic. Um, so you can kind of get an idea of how he he did it. So I think I was just completely, um, you know, immersed in those visuals, and I, I was just shaken to the core by the visual of this woman and coming back to life and everything. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, it's it's a pretty great it's a pretty great episode. I think it still stands the 
you know, the test of time. But uh, obviously, it's it's um, you know, it's it's not super complicated story or anything. It's relatively relatively mm. straightforward. Don't okay. take things out, dead people. Right. Right. Uh, oh, one one last question I wanted to ask about the childhood years. So there are some people that we've talked to for whom horror was a pleasure as early as they can remember. And for other people, there was fear uh, and then it turned to pleasure at a certain point. Was it always pleasure for you or was there some sort of dividing line where, okay, now I'm starting to see some kind of enjoyment out of it? Yeah, there's definitely a dividing line. So in, in, when I was young, like all, all these memories I'm telling you, really it wasn't pleasurable. It was, it was frightening. Uh, the drop mm-hmm. of water was really frightening. There was a couple other movies I remember watching and just, just being terrified. But again, going back to it, right? Uh, then when I, you know, when I was in my teen years, probably when I turned like 16, somewhere in there, um, 15 maybe. Then it was more like uh, I got into I mean, I would still get scared. I would still get frightened. But I, I was just more like, this is really fun. And um, Do you recognize any particular thing as being the defining line? Like a particular movie? Movie, event, book, whatever. No, nothing in particular, no. Okay. No. All right. Well, then speaking in general, like if we were to pick, say, the top three things that were impactful in your teens as far as horror media, what would those be? Okay. So there would be a few things. It would probably be uh, The Shining by Stanley Kubrick, um, The Good. Midnight Meat Train by Clive Barker, which is ah, a yes. story, Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead by George Romero, I would say. Mm-hmm. So they were, I mean, those are very different. So Kubrick was kind of the first person – the Shining, you know, in Kubrick's movies in general, was the first person I ever was aware of the director. So I was aware that there was a, a, a sort of like a mind behind the camera that was showing me certain things and doing it in a very deliberate way. And uh, I, I was sort of fascinated by it. I became fascinated with that process. The first time I started thinking about telling a story that way was after watching his, his movie, particularly The Shining. Then um, with The Midnight Me Train... That was just one of those, they're just, just a deliciously a gory, or, well, just a, a horrific, we'll call it, a deliciously horrific situation where you have this guy in a train and all these bodies hanging upside down, he's walking through them, and, you know, they're swaying and they're hitting him. So that was the, the first time I can remember having that sensation of like, oh, this is like a well-done uh, meal, you know what I mean? It's like something mm-hmm. you're preparing and you're... you're you're adding these ideas and you're just adding them in such a way that they, they create this, this irresistible sort of uh, experience, you know, and it's just really horrific. So that, so that was, um, and then w- when it came to um, Romero's movies, you know, that was sort of, he was the first one to where I first, I saw the sort of the festive aspect of, of horror. Like, you know, it's like a carnival thing. It's fun. And it's kind of funny, you know, when, when you see a zombie's head blown off and, you know, the zombie chewing off this woman's arm. and It's not, it wasn't disturbing to me. It was more, I wouldn't say hilarious, but it was, it was just really fun. You know, it was just like, yeah, it was just like sheer entertainment. So it was like the entertainment value of it. Mm. Almost like a parody. Kind of, yeah. It was, it's sort of like using horror 
it, you know, using horror for other ends other than, okay, just to frighten you to the core. There's other things you can do with it. You can exaggerate it to the point where it's, it's something else. I want to go back to Midnight Meat Train for a second. You use the phrase deliciously gory or deliciously morbid, I think was, was the phrase you used. What do you mean by deliciously? You know, a lot of times when you watch horror movies, you're, you're, you, you could see like, you know, people getting killed, people getting stabbed, whatever, you know, he's get violence and, you know, whatever, ghosts and this and that. And, and that's, that's cool. That's, there's nothing wrong or anything with that, but it's only very rarely that you get something that's just uh, created or put together in such a way that has very particular elements that create this very, very, very particular experience, you know? And um, that's what I call delicious horror. It's just like an idea that's just so good and so unique. It's, it's just kind of, um, you experience it in a different way. And I can give you different examples of that, you know. Um, Before we do that, yeah. let's continue focusing on this particular one. So what was good or unique about this one? Well, it was this idea that this guy is trapped in a subway you know, at midnight or past midnight, after the subway's closed, really. And he's walking through this, this subway, and there's all these bodies that are hanging upside down that, have been, that are being drained of their blood, and, and you know, the subway's swaying, and he's, and, and he's trying to walk through it, and he's trying to hold in his scream, and, you know, it's, it's like all those sort of elements that if you don't have a, um, a taste for morbidity, if you don't have a, 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 a sense of like, like a, a liking for, for the macabre, then you are probably going to stay away from that idea or from that kind of uh, movie or experience or, or literature. You're going to go the other way, right? But somebody who can appreciate that, I think, is, is you know, that's, a, that's just, a really, just a really great way to present something, you know, just a great way to... To, to put those elements together. I guess like what I said before, it's like a recipe, right? Well, I like the phrase that you use presentation because that the specific word is used in the restaurant industry to talk about how important, how you present a meal uh, affects uh, a, a customer's interpretation of that meal. Right. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. How do you, how you present it is, is a huge part of how they consume it or are already part of the consumption process. Right. What was it about it that made it the special experience for you? Um, I think it was, uh, yeah, I see what you're, you're getting at. So I'll, I'll kind of compare it a little bit to Lovecraft. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Lovecraft. You've read a lot of Lovecraft. A bit. I'm familiar. I haven't actually read any of his works. I need to. Right. Right. Yeah, you should check out some of his some of his later works. Well, one of the things that Lovecraft uh, has, I think, one of the reasons why people love Lovecraft, certainly why I do, is that his imagination is particularly morbid. He's just got a morbid imagination. He knows where to, like, where to take you in a story and where to put your hand. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, he'll take you somewhere that's really, like, you just don't want to go, and he'll tell you why you don't want to go there and then he'll make you go there and then he'll make you go to the worst part 
of that place. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's kind of what I mean. It's kind of like that the artistry behind um, just putting a person that, that, or and, and create an experience that is particularly horrific that that the person who's actually um, creating this would have to to really know their shit. You know, they would have to kind of have uh, uh, spent a lot of time with that material to be able to to just play it in such a way that I guess uh, well, you're sending shivers up the spine, right? Mm. <laughs> mm. Um, yeah, it's it's hard to say because yeah, it's it's just I guess it's really it's just having that morbid imagination. It's just that's really what it was. It's just like a, a sense of um, being able to to imagine something that's so ghastly, really. On a scale of one, on a scale of one to a hundred, where one is do not like and a hundred is I actually enjoy this greatly. Where would you say you fall in terms of liking to stay in a moment that is emotionally uncomfortable? Like in, in, you're talking about in art, right? Correct. A movie or a book or anything like that. Is that correct? You could open it up to real life too, if you'd like. Well, that's different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's completely, that's completely, Those are two so, completely yeah. different facets. Yeah. How about For two me, different answers then? Yeah, sure. So the reason I make that distinction is because art has to do with creativity, but real life, you know, is, is, is it doesn't. So in, in, in art, I would, I have no problem seeing, uh, people get decapitated, for example. One of the reasons is because it's part of a narrative flow. There, there's a story, and it's as part of the story. Whereas in real life, I, you know, I would would never want to see that happen. But so in in art, yeah, it would be a hundred. In real life, be like one. So when I again, a hundred being, I actively enjoy it. So when you said I have no problem with, to me, I was thinking fifty. Right, but I was talking about when I was young. Now it's different. Okay. Yeah. Okay. See the way, the way I experience yeah, horror child. movies. Yeah, when I, the way I experience horror now or any art, any art, it's totally different. I can't. I mm. even when I'm scared, I'm not scared. I'm sitting there going, "Oh yeah, that's the, I love the way they did this or whatever." As a matter of so fact, setting is. Sorry, what? Mm. No, go ahead. You were asking about dreams. And so what happened after I launched Remorgue uh, was about uh, maybe maybe two years after I launched Remorgue, I think it was. I had a dream. Um, it was a nightmare. But um, it's the last nightmare I had for, I think, uh, for this last nightmare I ever had in my life. And the, the nightmare was um, basically I was in this huge um, house, somebody else's house. It was like enormous. It was on a on a, on a hill or something, and um, and it was you know somebody else's place. And there was it was at nighttime. There was this, these huge windows, and I could see the moon. You know, it was like standard, very typical sort of like a haunted house type thing situation. And there was a presence in this house. And, um, you know, um, in the dream, I was going towards this presence, this, this uh, ghostly presence. And I found it. It was a sort of like a long hallway, and there was a bench. I think it was a, some sort of a couch or something there. 
And there was a, a little depression where I could see this, there was a ghost was sitting there, like a presence. And I sat right in the, I sat right on that spot. And then it moved away. Hmm. And then I, I followed it and I went and it went, it was in this room and it was this big four poster bed and everything. And it was lying on this bed and there, you could see the depression where it was lying. And then I went there and I lied in that depression. Like I just went to sleep where that thing was. So that, you know, in, in the dream is going towards this emotionally uncomfortable place. It was, I could feel the fear in my gut in the dream, but I still did it. But so after that, things changed. So what I'm trying to say is that, yeah, with art, it, it just doesn't, uh, I don't, there's not discomfort anymore. It's more um, admiration. It, it's like, it's a complicated emotion, right? Even if I'm scared or something, it's more mixed in with yeah, admiration and like the, all these critical ideas or whatever, you know, just like, oh. Going back to that dream for a moment, do you remember why you wanted to go to that place to sit in that spot that it was sitting or lay in the place it was laying? Well, I think it, um, it had to do with, for sure, it had to do with Rue Morgue because what happened was, so, you know, when I started Rue Morgue, every day, you know, every single day of my life, like nine to five, I was in that world of horror. It was no longer something that I sort of did here and there, you know, with my friends or in my spare time or when I picked up a book or when I watched a movie. It, it was literally, uh, you know, I would, it was your job. It was my job. Yeah. yeah. I just start work. And then I was surrounded by all this imagery and stuff. And so I, I had a deep connection to it. Right. If, if it was just somebody, if I had just been hired and I didn't care about horror, I don't think that would have happened. But I was. I was uh, something that I had been following since I was a child. So um, when I found myself in that situation, I think I think over time of those two years, obviously uh, something was happening in my subconscious, and things were changing. You know, the way I looked at these things, or you know, and um, and it came out in that dream. And then the dream, it was sort of um, I think it was essentially. Not making peace with it, but certainly um, identifying myself with that thing that was uh, frightening me. So I, I kind of be became that thing, or it either became it, but I was I was embracing it. I was trying to follow it, and I was trying to become closer to it. And I, I'm for whatever reason that the, the dream it just it was just like a watershed moment. It just it just flushed everything out and I never had nightmares after that. You mentioned the scenario where you found the depression on the bed and then you laid there and you went to sleep. Do you remember, was it a situation where you went to sleep there because it stayed like it didn't leave or was it continuing to move on and in other dreams you continue to follow it? And this just, this one particular dream you just didn't do that. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh, when I, I don't think so. I think it moved on, but I just, I stayed in that spot. Hmm. Um, but the, the frightening part was following it to where it was and sort of seeing it and then finding it, you know, you know, when you're in a dream, you're, you're, you're not thinking rationally. You're, you're in an emotional state. 
So right. it, it was it was the emotion that was driving me forward. It was saying, go there where this ghost is, go right there and like lie right there where it's lying. That's a really unique thing to have to ha to have happen in a dream, because because yeah. in a dream you're usually fleeing any sign of trouble, any sign of anything like that. You you're just going the other way. Well, to me, fears and desires are sort of like opposites. Like if you can imagine for a minute standing on a street corner and you've got you know like a you're looking up at a, a signpost that has, you know, 34th Avenue and one direction says North, the other direction says South, you know, usually we have a fear, we have a desire and then we, we fear losing whatever it is we desire. And so it makes me wonder what you were desiring because it, I think there's a desire there because you kept following. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess it's to um, yeah. I don't know uh, to not fear, to not be scared anymore, to to be closer to that thing that scared me, something like that. Hmm. Probably to be yeah, because it was still scary. I remember it being scary in the dream, like it was a frightening thing. It, it wasn't like like uh, it, it wasn't frightening anymore. It was frightening, but I was moving towards it. Yeah, right. And, and sit, like right in it, like I was sitting right. In, like it wasn't like I was sitting beside it or like I was right you know right where it was sitting like i was literally sitting down in the place where this ghost was sitting hmm. you know or or in or also fall when i followed it to the bed i lied in the part where it was right. lying down i wasn't lying beside it or you know cuddling up to it no i was you know that's an interesting addition because before you said you weren't afraid of it and now the it's sort of like adding not only was i not afraid of it i wanted to be part of it yeah, something like that. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm, I'm trying to run it through my rational brain here. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It's it's the it, you know it's the language of the unconscious. Mm -hmm. Yes, I don't know. It's, Is it true uh, that you uh you can't read anything in dreams? I've seen that entertained in certain fictional stories and just brought up here and there, but I've never like heard confirmation on it. You're not supposed to be able to actually read text in dreams, right? I don't know. I think I have uh, before. Um, yeah, me but too. Not, not often. Yeah. Like I, I want to say I've I remember doing it, but I, I've always heard that you know. Just speaking of the rational mind and the dreamlike irrational mind, that's one of the things. That the thing that I've heard is that there's always <clears throat> one sense missing. Hmm. Like for example, you say you can't read. Well, you might have a dream where you can read, but you can't smell. Huh. Like and and the one thing that's missing is always changing. I've okay. never been able to smell. I don't have a memory of ever smelling anything in my dreams. Yeah, me either. More I. Yeah. Maybe. It's not something that you really think about. No. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe if I was blind. Mm. Maybe. Maybe. <sighs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Different perspective. Yeah. So in your teen years, did you participate in Halloween in your teens? Up till I was maybe 14 was the last time, I think. 13. Yeah. Yeah. Favorite costume? I don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> least favorite costume yeah the sheet the sheet <laughs> the ghost sheet. that was teens <laughs> same thing okay uh any scary dreams as a teen i had lots of scary dreams um but i had some some other shit happen that was more like paranormal probably that'd be more interesting to you guys maybe. Okay, okay yeah the real life experience this was in your teens no this happened to me uh in 2009, 
what happened with this one is um, I'm trying to make this relatively short. Well, basically, I, <laughs> I I was living in a funeral home. I don't know if you guys knew, but uh, a rumor operated out of a funeral home for years, about a decade. Cool. Um, I, so I bought this funeral home. And I lived up above it, and and then you know the downstairs was remarked. The, the chapel they had a chapel in there. I turned it into a screening room, and there was an embalming room that was like a smoking area, and there was like a anyway. It's all these rooms. It was a very large building, say so about eight thousand square feet building. Anyway, I was living there by myself, and um and there was a, was a one of the staff. Uh, he was having uh, I don't know. He he him and his uh, fiance were on the outs or whatever. So he, he, you know, offered him to, he could sleep in one of the rooms upstairs. Anyway. So, um, one night, uh, turns out that uh, I was just lying in bed. It was around just after midnight. And I heard somebody, um, sort of footsteps in the hallway, sort of outside my room. There were sort of de- slow, deliberate footsteps. And I did, I was wide awake, but I, I didn't really feel like, uh, like I, I, I kept sort of saying, ah, it's, it's, probably like that guy or whatever. And, you know, it's nothing to it, but it didn't sound like him, you know? Mm. And I didn't want to get up out of bed, but then the, eventually this person, whoever it was, just walked right in front of my door. Oh uh, yeah. That classic was, scenario okay. where you, it was the door closed and you could just see the feet underneath it. No, I couldn't see the feet, but, um, I, the door was closed and they, yeah, they just walked right in front. Yeah. And it was like hardwood floors up there. So they creaked and they were very, yeah. you know what I mean? Like you're loud and like there was sneaking no, is not an option. No. And this person had boots on. Oh, within. Yeah. So, yeah. So it was very, like very, you know, and so I got up and I, and what had happened in long time ago is, uh, one time we, somebody left one of the doors open and, uh, somebody got in. So I thought that's kind of what happened again. Uh-huh. So I got up and, and um, I went and knocked up. The guy's name was Dave. I knocked on his door and I got him up. He was sleeping. And I, said, I think somebody kind of got into the building. And, and uh, he said, okay. So we started looking around upstairs and we didn't find anything. And we went downstairs. <clears throat> and so in classic horror movie um, style, we split Did up. Did you split up? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's what you do, really. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the place was really large, and and so when we got downstairs, he went, he turned left towards the front where the chapel was, and there were some offices, and then I turned right to to the back where my office was, and in the embalming room and all that. And so anyway, I uh, rounded the corner into my office, and there was somebody sitting right at my desk. Oh, and so the thing was that this person was me. Um, and I I was a little older. Yeah, I was about four or five years older and, uh, it was just, we just made eye contact and then that person just vanished. Was there like a large black rectangle also in the corner of the room? And then was the version of you even older later on? No. Okay. No, 2001 no. Space no, no, no. But I'll tell you, uh, it was extremely shocking experience. Sounds like it, yeah. It was uh, it was pretty, you know, and you know, later on, um, I would get sort of freaked out when I was downstairs by myself. I thought, oh, maybe I'll, I'll see myself come around the corner or something. I mean, understandably. I mean, the more the more relevant question is, did you then later, as 
as you were older, have another dream or another experience where a younger you ah, came around uh-huh, while you were in the desk. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, it's but a time about, travel thing. Right, yeah. right. No, but about four years later, uh, I woke up one day and I went to the bathroom and I washed my face and stuff and I looked in the mirror and that was the guy. And I told my wife, I said, yeah, that's the dude I saw. So it was around f- me about four years older. Hmm. And... Um, you know, I don't know why that happened. I mean, I, it's it was a very strange experience, and sometimes no. I, I think to, to myself, oh, I mean, I couldn't have, you know, it couldn't have happened, you know. Well, sorry about that. My dogs are freaking out here. Hang on. No accounting for kids or animals. Nope. Right there, you go. Anyway, all right. Sorry about that. Hmm. Anyway, so, um, well, to, to wrap the story up, like, uh, definitely um, this person was walking up there. Although I only saw them for a fraction of a second, that definitely that person was walking up and down, or a person. And later on, I, I remembered that, or I realized that I always wore boots, you know, at that time. So it, it was very uncanny. But, um, you know, the last thing I'll say about this experience was that uh, that year, I was... Uh, 2009. So the year, several months after, I entered into like the worst year of my life. So I think that had something to do with it. I think this was some sort of um, kind of like a premonition. premonition thing. Yeah. It was sort of saying that I'm going to be okay. I'm gonna be okay. Yeah. Something like that. Because I was keeping a dream diary at that time too. And, and looking back after years later, I look back and there was premonitions. Of course, I didn't know at the time, but. When I was a kid, I remember having these dreams that, well, I didn't know I was having the dreams at the time. It would be different. It was, I would have these waking moments in my daily life that were deja vu moments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, but they weren't, they were sort of like <clears throat> just a day in the life snapshots of like, me walking down the street and walking past a house and looking at the flowers in front of the house, like nothing special at all. The boring as I would have this. Yeah. But well, it wasn't a, a whole dream. It was just a, a snippet, shall we say of like a couple seconds clip show. And I would think to myself, I, I remember dreaming about this. I don't know how long ago. And I sort of eventually got to this point where I felt like, I was having these experiences on days when something big happened in my life, either good or bad. And if I had one of those moments and nothing had happened yet, that was significant. I would be on like my best behavior for the rest of the day because I felt like something was coming. Like, and did it something's going to happen? Um, I think in certain circumstances it did because that's what eventually taught me to make that association. You know what I mean? Hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess then the question is, did it happen naturally just by coincidence or did you kind of manifest it by having the inspiration from the dream snippet? You know, I don't think it was that. I think it was like I would have that deja vu experience. And then like later in the day, I would do something accidental and get my ass beat like <laughs> unrelated. But the the relation was the fact that I had this deja vu experience earlier in the day. Mm-hmm. Anyway, weird thing. Yeah, that's interesting. <clears throat> So, I mean, 
We could probably ask all kinds of questions about you uh, purchasing and living in a funeral home. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. There's a whole story there. Uh, yeah, that, that that could be a whole conversation in and of itself. Um, yeah, it was a really special place. Um, yeah, it was really, really, really great. Let's see. Let's jump down to some of the adult sections here then. So in your adult years, if we were to pick three things that were impactful to you in terms of horror media, what would the top three things be that come to your mind? No, well, you know, at some point I kind of switched my mind to thinking more as a filmmaker. And um, I would say the the films of Stanley Kubrick, the films of David Lynch, mm-hmm. because the thing is Stanley Kubrick He's a very uh, sort of um, methodical filmmaker, kind of like rational mind uh, f- uh, filmmaker. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he kind of, um, his movies are uh, kind of like a chess game watching his movies. Um, yeah, you know, that's, that's an interesting point that I've not really heard a lot of people bring up when describing Kubrick films is they're very rational. Yeah. Because they are. You know, whether it's the, the protagonist that you're identifying with or the events that unfold with the, with the story, they're rational. They're irrational, horrific things happening to, right. ir, to rational people. Right. And, and, and it's sort of uh, they're presented in a very sort of rational way. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I won't get into The Shining, but, but um, just to say that I, it, it's not my favorite Stanley Kubrick movie or anything like that. I don't think he, in a way he, his approach to horror was too rational in a way, but anyway, I love his style of filmmaking uh, overall. Uh, And secondly, it was David Lynch because he's the opposite of the spectrum. He's, he's kind of totally Mm. irrational. (laughs) Intentionally even. Yeah. He's completely irrational. He, to the point where he won't even, um, I've read some of his books and listened to his interviews and he says, when an idea comes in my head, I don't ask questions about why, why it's there or what, you know, how to decipher it. I just follow it. Like you would follow a dream and you know, his movies sort of like an improv. Yeah. And his movies have that quality, you know, they're all of his movies don't make sense, but to me, they make emotional sense. I think that's what makes him a great filmmaker. Yeah. So, um, you know, I mean, aside from those two guys, like obviously I'm, I'm a cinephile. I love all kinds of movies. I love all kinds of filmmakers. But, but my main source of inspiration is my inner world, my dreams and my, just my obsessions and things like that. I, I really do, I'm not the kind of filmmaker that, that like, oh, I want to do a homage to this guy or that guy. Or, really, I, I'm interested in, in Kubrick and Lynch. The reason I them out is just in terms of how to approach cinema as a as a medium and how to tell a story so there's a rational component and there's an irrational component and, and you know trying to find a good balance and trying to find how to tell the story T- to me they, they kind of represent um it, it's sort of two left brain right brain kind of thing it's kind of interesting like you say you've got these two sort of this dichotomy between the methodical and the rational versus the irrational and the emotional. Um, and trying to meld the two. Yeah. I think that that's kind of, um, at least the way I, you know, it makes most sense to me to, to pursue a story because, um, um, you know, it's sort of like accessing that irrational 
dreamlike stuff from your from your unconscious and then and then essentially molding it into something that has you know that has a structure and has a, a messaging and and means something right i i certainly am not um as uh, say confident as david lynch that i would just balls out just put my dreams on paper and try to shoot that and i just uh, you know like i just don't um i would need i need to kind of wrestle with it and kind of figure out what it means to me and what i'm trying to say at that time you know what i mean so there's definitely a, a lot of there's a there's a big rational component but you know that's just my process you know i, I don't know how other people sort of do their thing um Okay. So the next two questions I'm going to ask at the same time, because it could be the same answer for both of them, or it could be two different answers. Mm-hmm. But these two questions are, what is your favorite movie? And this is across all life, not just adult years. And it doesn't have to be horror. It could be any genre. Right. But what is what is your favorite movie? And then what movie have you watched more times than any other? The movie I've watched more times than any other is Amadeus by Milos Forman. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, big fan of Mozart and... Uh, I think that that there's something about that movie. Um, I started watching when I was very, very young and it's just sort of like the, the quest of the artist and, and sort of like, you know, it's just high art to me that Mozart's music was, was sort of high art, but the person creating it was this lowbrow kind of guy. And it was it's very interesting how all that mixed together. Um, no, you know, there's just something special about that movie. So that's the movie I've watched the most times in my life. In terms of my favorite movie, you know, that's really hard to say, man. I just, I have so many favorite movies and so many movies that I like to watch. Like my favorite Kubrick movie would be Barry Lyndon. At least that's the one I, that I like the most right now. My favorite David Lynch movie is Mulholland Drive. At least that's the one I like the most now. I, I think probably the best movie, horror movie ever made is, is the most effective horror movie ever made is probably The Exorcist. Yeah. It's just no arguments there. really, really well done. And a lot of the imagery and content of that movie is, is, is still shocking in 2022, which is really saying a lot that something you made in 1973 or 74, whatever it was, it can, can be shocking at the, you know, this day and age with all the cultural revolutions that we've had, all the changes and the different mindsets and well, for the purposes of this call, we yeah. focus on emotions. So right going back to Barry Lyndon, what's your emotional response to Barry Lyndon? Beauty. That movie was shot, was, uh, was, uh, shot with, with, uh, NASA lenses, you know, the, the NASA lenses okay. that they had on. And he, he lit it with available lighting and candles. And he essentially storyboarded it with Renaissance paintings in mind. Right. Okay. And he said it in that period. So when you look at this movie, it's like you're looking at paintings and they're move, the characters are moving. And there's the, 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 the music of the period and so on and so forth. And he's just such a masterful filmmaker that that, that movie is just a, just a beautiful experience. It's kind of like, to me, when, you know, the height of cinema. What about Mulholland Drive? Oh, my emo- emotional reaction to Mulholland Drive is... It's just being in this, in his world. It's as close to a, a dream that I've seen a, a movie. He's, he's a filmmaker who does his movies in a way that reminds me of dream of dreaming. Yeah, you're right. right. He's very dreamlike. Would you say it's more that his films are surreal or that they're more like disassociative? Probably both. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd the say mood a little bit more. 
dissociative. Yeah, go ahead. Dissociative. Yeah, 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 for sure. The phrase I like to use is flow of consciousness. Yeah, but, you know, from a filmmaker's perspective, there's, you know, you can fuck that up really easily. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can really come up with a fucking turkey doing that, you know. Um, you really have to. There are some weird dreams out there. There are some weird dreams, but I don't know if they would resonate with an audience, you know, for, for people who don't have that dream. You know, I'm having a dream. That's why I'm agreeing with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Uh, right. So anyway, I think that, yeah, his, his, um, the emotion that I get is the, that kind of emotional feeling that I have when I'm in a dream, okay. which is really attractive. Do you see any common threads about what kind of horror you like? Cannibalism, occult, metaphysical? I like a well-told story. It doesn't matter what the fuck it okay. is. Yeah. Okay. Like it, yeah. You're not, yeah. You're not the first one to uh, suggest that answer. And that's a valid answer. Like I, I just like quality story. Yeah. yeah. Right. Whatever it is that you choose, just do it, you know, do it well. Hmm. hmm. The two things that I was expecting there were either supernatural or murder mystery. No, not at all. Um, although, I mean, I do think that supernatural is part and parcel of horror. Well, not necessarily because there's lots of all kinds of different horror genres, not just supernatural. Correct. Yeah. That's correct. But, but I think at one time when I early on in Remorgue, I came up with my own definition of horror, which is part of it was that it was in the, that it contained usually contained violence and was not always, but tended to be, have a supernatural component, right? So, um, so yeah, you're right. It doesn't need to be supernatural, but a lot of it is. And, and I would say even, you know, most of it toys with the possibility of the supernatural. You know? I think it's a, it's an important component of, of that type of story, of that type of language. Right. But, but it's not necessary. You're right. There's all kinds of shit that has no, you know, that's, that's horror that has absolutely nothing to do with supernatural. And what I mean by supernatural is like a fantastic element. Not, I don't necessarily right. mean ghosts. I don't, I don't, you know. No, just like something that. that, you know, has, hasn't been definitely defined by science, basically. Yeah, something that's outside of what we would consider outside of our, of our physical experience. Something that's fantastical. Something that's... Before I ask the last few questions here, so just to summarize what has come up so far on the call, what I've been hearing is, you know, living in the discomfort, being at home with the uncomfortable balancing the rational with the irrational and sort of this quest of maybe balancing the two and that it's not obviously a, a resolved question for you. That's why it's still a quest to, to balance these two things. Do you think that that is accurate of a description for what it is you get out of horror? Or do you think there's something more that is more accurate than that? Well, the the balancing the rational and the and the irrational that that's more um, in terms of uh, my creative process, right? Um, so it, it's not necessarily what I get out of horror. I would say more that's what I put into it. Yeah, but you know, it's it's kind of like um, I mean, you're you're not wrong in what you said, but th I think that for me anyway, it's it's a it's just continual discovery, right? And that's why I try to put myself um, is to try and discover something and 
I do find, I'll tell you one thing, I don't, I don't watch uh, as many horror movies now that I used to, okay? I really don't. I, I'll, I'll watch a horror movie uh, because my staff tells me it's amazing or, or people mm-hmm. that, I, uh, that I know and trust tell me it's worth watching. Or a director comes out with something that I, I like the director and I want to see what he did with it. But in general, you know, I don't really watch many horror movies at all. But the thing is, is that every time I sit down to write something, it's always horror that comes out. It, even if I didn't have Remorgue magazine, even if I was just like just an independent filmmaker, I would just be doing horror movies because that's just what comes out of me. Um, that's, how, also, that's my happy place. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. No, I can see that happening. Like you sit down to write, like, I don't know, a science fiction that it ends up being becoming a murder mystery, which, okay, now it's a horror. Right. Yeah. And I go to horror tropes and stuff like that. Yeah. And I, and I like to like splitting up. <laughs> yeah. I'll just, I'll just, yeah. I'll try to make it frightening. And, and the summary that I gave was sort of leading into that to ask why those things are your happy place um, in the sense of, balancing the rational and the rational. Okay. You kind of knock that one out. Cause you say that's more in terms of your creative aspect. Um, and then you said maybe a better summary would be continual discovery. The natural follow-up question of that then would be, well, what are you trying to discover? Ah, well that the answer to that is, I don't know. <laughs> I'll tell you, I don't know. Right. It's, but I'm, I'm, but I'm discovering it, right? Like, it's just kind of like a little bit like, you know, like going out into the, into deep space or something. You just don't know what's there, but you, you're, you're looking, you're just looking to see what's there. It's a little bit like that. Um, it's, it's not anything. I don't have an agenda. That's for sure. Uh, because, you know, the, the thing was when you, do, you give yourself an agenda, then you, you're just limiting yourself. It's a, it's a little bit like saying, um, it's, like, it's like believing something versus saying, I don't know. If, if, you, if you, you're comfortable with saying, I don't know, you put yourself in a situation where you can learn anything. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, the knowledge, you know, everything is limitless. You're, you, you can suddenly learn something. You can discover shit. Oh, yeah. Suddenly you believe something, you're completely limiting yourself. You're completely, there's no discovery there anymore. There's no... There's no learning. You've already kind of like put up your walls. Oh yeah. Yeah. I have a document where I keep favorite quotes. And I think this one is my favorite Francis Bacon, where he Uh says, if a man is content to start with questions, he will, will arrive at answers. But if he starts with answers, he will, will arrive at questions. Mm. There you go. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I think I feel that way for sure. Francis Bacon for sure. (laughs) <laughs> I, th- I don't quote me on the Francis Bacon part. I, I'm not uh, positive about that, but I, the quote was essentially the same. Is he related right. to Kevin Bacon? Right. Yeah, no idea. S- six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Francis. <laughs> well, considering that Kevin Bacon's name might be a, a screen name anyway, that it might not be a relation anyway. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> so the, again, the natural follow-up question here is, is, why horror once we have drilled down on these things, but it's you're kind of stymieing us on figuring out what the things are, because like you say, uh, you don't know what you're trying to discover. So it's kind of then hard to ask what the follow-up is of why horror generally, if 
for a guest, if we had narrowed in on a particular topic, the question we would ask is why horror? Because couldn't you find that particular topic in some other genre? Um, But you're saying that whenever you sit down to write, it's horror that comes out. Mm -hmm. And so there must be something about horror that lends itself to the things you want to write. I think that horror for, for me has a lot of ideas rolled into it. So it's, it's not just um, the subject matter that's dark and grim and macabre and all that, but it, there's also ideas of taboo rolled into it. Mm-hmm. You know, what we talked about earlier at the beginning of this interview or discussion that, you know, we talked about why anybody likes horror. Why does people, what, you know, is it a question you ask people who like horror? It's not a question you ask people who like sports. There's, there's a taboo aspect to it. People always... You know, if you say, this is what I do for a living, people will always be like, why would you do that? People look at it as an abnormal thing. It doesn't matter how cool they are with it or how supportive. If, you know, they'll always, you know, look, look at it as something abnormal. That's, that's where we are in our culture. There's, there's definitely, you know, t- with taboo also, you know, taboo subjects is looking at, taboo subjects i think there's also the fascination of death that's rolled up into it mortality and all that which which is rolled in up with the idea of the meaning of life if we're, we're if we die why are we here so there, there's like a you know when you when you're when you're confronting these things in your mind you're tossing them around in your mind like if you're particularly you're a little bit morbid and and you're you're fascinated with death then then those ideas can come with it i'm not saying that everybody who likes horror is profound or 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 thinking about their mortality that's not the case but i'll say it no yeah but uh but it it, it, you know there those ideas flow together right well i mean it does sound because you have mentioned in multiple places in this call that you know looking for something discovering something like you say you don't know what's out there so it does sound like you are in at least for you personally, are in that uh, category, shall we say? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I, I do think that that certainly has to, something to do with it. Like I said, I, I think horror, the reason horror is my happy place, it has all of these aspects or elements to it that are really intriguing to me, and they're fascinating, and they continue to be, fa- to be fascinating 25 years later, even though I look at the genre differently and stuff. It's it's still interesting and it's still worth exploring and it's still fascinating. I imagine it probably will be for a long time. Potentially. Yeah. Hopefully. Uh, well, last question. Uh, is there anything you've thought of that might be relevant that hasn't come up on this call? You know, did we start to talk about something and then the conversation went in a different direction and you didn't get an opportunity to say something like, no, this has been a very interesting conversation. You, I mean, you guys have asked a lot of questions that I've never been asked before, which is saying something. Because I've been around ask, answering questions for 25 years. <laughs> so on this particular topic. So, I mean, kudos to you guys. You've given me a lot to think about, actually. It, it really reminds me a lot of when I first started Remorgue, what, what my thinking was. And in a way, um, talking to you guys has, has kind of... Uh, reminded me of a lot of those early days and how I was sort of approaching things and looking at the genre and stuff like that. 
Well, like you say, if 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 we were to say, for example, your summary is that you are uh, investigating the unknown. Well, yeah, you. If the if the question hasn't been answered, then of course it's still worth asking. You know what right. I'm saying? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, you know, in the end, that whole idea of Rue Morgue being a detective story is still true. I'm I'm reminded of the U2 lyric, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't close off with that song. Please don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, I'm queuing it up right no, now. We, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. Well, we appreciate your time and we appreciate appreciate your appreciation of the questions that we've asked. Yeah. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, it's been great. Yeah, thanks. Likewise, uh, Steve and Chris, this has been really fantastic. Uh, when, uh, uh, please do send me a, a link or whatever it is. What, is this a paper thing or is this a podcast thing or how does it work? It's it's a podcast. Uh, what we'll do is I will get with you offline to ask for whatever bio you want for us. We'll, we'll create a bio page on our website and uh, maybe like three to five pictures that we can use in a slideshow. And then when we um, post the podcast, we'll tag you on Twitter and let you know when it's been posted. Yeah. Great. Well, I look forward to it. And yeah, I, I really appreciate it. And good luck with your with your uh, with your podcast, this is uh, yeah, it's really cool. It's really good to um, to have this kind of chat. It's rare. There's yeah. not yeah. a lot of people who are discussing at this level. We are happy to fill the niche. Mm-hmm. Well, good stuff, guys. Thanks yeah, again. Thank really you. appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Uh, our pleasure. And thank you, anybody out there listening. Uh, please do come visit us on HorrorMixHappy.com. Uh, we got a list of people there we'd like to interview. If you'd like to have anybody added to the list, let us know. If you can help us get in touch with anybody, let us know. Uh, otherwise, you can also support us on Patreon or buy us a coffee and uh, buy some merch or just tell a friend. <laughs>